This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Edgar Carrot, author of the short story collection, Fly Already. Growing up in the Middle East, when you're exposed to a lot of violence, kind of, you know, straight in your face, I think it pushed me into making stories. We'll be back with Edgar Carrot in a few minutes. First, I want to invite you to be part of the First Draft community by becoming a member at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. One of the best benefits of becoming a Patreon member is that you can listen to First Draft ad-free and pitch-free. You will no longer hear me asking you to join the First Draft community because you'll already be a member. And for that, I thank you by getting you to the interview faster. No pleas from me, no ads. But there's more. For your contribution of $6 or more a month, you'll receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. And little extras I offer at random, clips of sound, and other thank yous. I've heard on average it takes listeners seven times to hear a pitch for Patreon before becoming members, so I invite you to beat the odds. If this is one through six, or if it's seven or more, please consider how valuable your patronage is to this podcast. Your support keeps the essential voices of writers sharing their craft and their work over the airwaves. Membership starts at just $6 a month and includes perks like extra cuts from the interviews that don't make the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and perhaps best of all, pitch-free, ad-free episodes every single week. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and join the First Draft family. I hope that from the more than 230 episodes you have learned something about craft and heard new and interesting perspectives about the world we live in and our human journey. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. You can find more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Israeli writer Edgar Carrot, who writes fiction, comics, nonfiction, and also writes for television and film. He currently lives in Tel Aviv, Israel. Fifteen of his books have been translated into English, and his work has been published in 42 languages in 45 countries. He has received many international awards for his writing and films. His work has appeared on This American Life and in The New Yorker, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Paris Review, among many other publications. His latest short story collection, Fly Already, won the Sapper Prize for Literature. Fly Already contains 22 short stories which venture from the realistic to the fantastic. His characters grapple with parenthood and family, war and games, marijuana and birthdays, memories of the Holocaust, the challenge of present-day politics, and general everyday matters of being human, like the feelings of joy and alienation, defeat and courage, and an ever-present sense of yearning. We began by talking about translation, starting with Edgar Carrot's name. 
that in Israel all the names have meaning. So Keret means like a, a metropole, like a big city. And the, and basically the reason that I have this name, this name was my father's Polish name was Krotoczowski, and nobody was able to pronounce it. And he wanted to change it to something in Hebrew. So Keret sounded like the beginning of Krotoczowski, like at least in the you know in the constants they are the same. And they basically. That's, that's why I'm named, my first name, Edgar, means challenge. So my name is basically Urban Challenge. I love that. Yeah, it's a, I always say it's a good name for a pair of sneakers, but kind of a strange name to name a human being. But when I started publishing, of course, everybody was sure it was a pseudonym because they say, okay, there couldn't be a guy out there called Urban Challenge who writes about life in the city you know it sounds too strange and the the reason that i'm called challenge which is also like a very i would say when i was born it was a unique name was because i was born uh, on the six months of my mother's pregnancy on a cesarean operation after the doctors urged her to have a late abortion because they were sure I'm going to die. So when I was born, she called me Challenge because it was my challenge to stay alive. Well, if you ever become a rapper in the U.S., you could be called Urban Challenge. And I could get sponsored by Nike or something. <laughs> exactly. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, and since you're talking about your name, is translation. So you write in Hebrew, and your writing actually gets translated to many languages all over the world, but we're talking about English. I'm just wondering if you read the translations and if that changes the stories a lot? I'm very much involved in the translation. And the, actually, tomorrow I'm going to visit my translator, my English translator, Sandra Silverstone. And the, the truth is that the, basically languages don't work the same way. So for me, the process of having a work translated, it's kind of having it rewritten. And the, I can give an example for that if it's interesting. I don't know. Of course. You want me to? Please. Okay. So, for, so for example, I have a story about a real estate agent. It's called 8% of Nothing. And it's a real estate agent who's being approached by a, a woman a, a, who had left her husband after a, discovering that he has an affair and she wants to find an apartment. And this guy goes and drives her around, but gradually as he drives her around, he understands that she di- didn't come to him just randomly. She came to him because he had rented the love nest for her husband and her lover. So while looking for the apartment, she tries to get from him information about uh, her, her husband's la- lover. And here is a break, and I'll tell you something about Hebrew. So in Hebrew, we don't have it form. We only have a feminine and masculine. So when you speak about a table or a window, it's either a, she, a he or a she. Uh, and now I return to the story. So as they go uh, on the car, uh, uh, the woman says to the real estate agent, is she beautiful? And the she he refers in Hebrew to many objects. Then the guy says to her, not only is she beautiful, but you'll have your own parking. 
because he doesn't want us to speak about the lover. He doesn't want to hurt the confidentiality. And because apartment is feminine, then when she asks, is she beautiful? Then he starts speaking about the next apartment they're about to see. So when you come to translate this a situation from Hebrew to English, you can't uh, just translate it because this kind of a fake misunderstanding doesn't work in English. You have to find something else that will be neutral and can be misunderstood. And I feel that many times, you know, you have to really think about what's important in the text because some kind of a double meaning wouldn't travel and what you should kind of go along with and what you should leave behind. I once said that the uh, translators are like ninjas. It's really, it's uh, the most ingrateful uh, profession in the world because basically when they're good, you don't notice them. You only notice them when they're bad, you know. So so a good ninja will never get a compliment because you don't know, even know that he's in the room. And, and the same thing goes for translators that really, I, whenever I know that a translation of mine is doing well, I know that the translator did a great job because the moment that you you give a text to a translator that doesn't really connect to it, there's no chance that any of the readers will connect to it. You know, it's a, it's kind of mandatory that he truly get it and he truly like it for people along further along the line to get it and like it. So I really, really think it's crucial. So do you consult a lot with your translator or does she kind of do it on her own and you trust that? Uh, no, we, we, uh, she does it on her own, but we speak about everything. And many times, uh, uh, let's say you look for swear words, you, you know, so she offered, uh, uh, offers a word and say, oh, no, this is too harsh, you know. Or sometimes I can ask her about something and she says, you know, that this doesn't exist in the U.S. In, for example, I have a, a story uh, in which uh, it's called The Bus Driver Who Wanted to Be God and in which the, the protagonist uh, is a smoker and he smokes a specific Israeli brand of cigarettes. And this uh, cigarette brand is the cigarettes that you get for free if you're in a kibbutz. And uh, uh, when you see somebody smoking the cigarette, it's basically the cigarette of the underachiever. You'll never see a CEO or a Wall Street guy smoking this kind of cigarette because it's kind of the loser's cigarette. And when this story was translated to English, you know, I talked to my translator and she said, you know, we have different brands, but we don't exactly have a cigarette that would mark you as a loser. You know, this kind of context is something that won't work in the U.S. And strangely enough, in Eastern European countries, all my translators fought in a second, say, oh, I know what we have this brand or this brand, because in Eastern Europe, it seems they have uh, cigarettes for losers, while in the Western world, you know, everybody can smoke. You know, you you set your stories both in Israel and the United States here, you know, talking about translation and the difference between cultures. When you go about to set a story in America, do you have a different mindset? Like, do you find that either con- consciously or unconsciously you're thinking about different things or different language? Uh, yes. I, uh, first of all, you know, my English is not uh, good enough to feel as uh, convenient in it as I feel when I speak or think in Hebrew. But sometimes I feel my I find find myself thinking in English because I think that there are some issues or some topics or sometimes, you know, there is a rhythm of things that kind, kind of works more in English for me. 
I, I would still write the text in Hebrew, but it can be inspired by an American song or an American movie or an American book. And the, and the, I, what I feel about kind of choosing the places where the stories take place is that, that the, there is something in the U.S. that kind of could represent something for me uh, in a more uh, a pure or clear way than it would in, in the Israeli society. For example, if I w- would want to write a story about a serial killer, it would be strange for me to write a story about a serial killer in Israel because we don't we don't really get many of them and the moment that I would write about one it would kind of sound sound kind of strange or the same I don't know if I would want to write a story about a superhero it would be easier for me to place it in the US not because you have superheroes active superheroes in the US but there is some kind of a superhero culture so even like you know, the words, the terms are, would become much more natural if they would be in an American setting. Uh, I think that, you know, it's like all this idea of, like, uh, I have one story that is kind of set in the, in the Midwest. And for me, the, uh, I, I spent some time in Iowa, in Iowa City, and all this idea of the Midwest and this kind of a, I don't know, like kind of a big country, the idea is that the, uh, the distance between where you are and the center of thing, which doesn't matter, I don't know, if it's Chicago or New York or, or LA, you know, it's, 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 there is really a big distance. You know, you are not, you are far from where things are happening. So, so there are those kind of a, a themes that seem to, attra- to attract me to kind of, to place them in the US. And when I write about it, you know, my stories are always a little bit like fables. So it's not as if there is some kind of a demand for very detailed hyper-realism that I would describe streets that I really know very well. It's, it's usually more about kind of a feel. And, uh, and I think that not, not, I would say kind of, sometimes there are stories that seem to have a more American feel to them. Is there one story in Fly already that takes place in America that you would want to talk about? Like a car concentrate, for example, was for me a very American story. The hero of the story, he he lives in a small town. He has this kind of issue of a, a father who would come rarely. Uh, it's a father who had killed the mother, basically, when he was drunk driving and the kids are in orphanage and, and he arrives in those kind of big intervals. And it's also stories that is it involves kind of a crime, murders, people being in jail. And there was something about the scale of this kind of thing would sound to me a little bit off in Israel when it's, I would say like, you know, it's a place where even if somebody, I don't know, if a father is not close to his children, everything is about three hours drive, you know? So, so you always kind of get to see people every couple of weeks or every month. And, and I could have written the story into it, but there was something about it that it, it was kind of a, in a dialogue with some kind of perception that I have of the US. It doesn't even have to be real. I think that we, we are living now in an age that, uh, let's say when I, I read a, a writer like uh, Murakami, so he's Japanese and he lives in Japan, but for me, he's kind of, he's a, he's a global writer because he lives in Japan and he goes to eat his Japanese food while listening 
you know, to to American jazz music or to American folk and then go home and the character goes home and watches Netflix. So this idea of kind of a, describing a, a, a certain point a, in the world becomes kind of a, a less distinct and in some sense less important because all of us, we live next to shopping malls where we can buy a, Nike sneakers and Mac products and I don't, uh, and we would all use I don't know the same phones and so the idea of this kind of writing is that I'm I myself would have written 30 or 40 years ago which would be very very local trying to kind of capture the specific taste of a place you know I mean I I come from Italy now I was in a reading tour in Italy I met her an eight-year-old kid, I asked him, what's your favorite food? He said, sushi, you know, he's Italian, you know, but he likes sushi because he's been eating sushi since he's four years old. And and he likes to see Rick and Morty because, uh, you know, he can stream it through Netflix. So this idea of locality, I'm not saying that it disappears, but it, but it could suddenly become, the differences could be between a, a country where you would see Rick and Morty with subtitles a country where you would see Rick and Morty dubbed to your own language. It's all, everything is kind of mashed together. And that story that you're talking about, Car Concentrate, we have the narrator who's kind of, he, he had a bad childhood, like you said. His dad killed the mother in a drunk driving accident, and he has a lot of anger towards his father. And after his father died, his Mustang was crushed. And so he has this crushed Mustang that maybe looks like a coffee table. And he sort of judges people who come over, especially women that he's trying to sleep with, on how they react to the car. And in this story, he uh, has a coworker over who he starts sleeping with, and he invites her kids over and tells them that this car is it's concentrated, that if you add water, it will blow up. And so it does seem in some way very American, but I don't know what it's like to be Israeli, to have this monument to your pain and anger be the centerpiece of your life. Well, for me, again, you know, the things that connected me to this kind of a crashed car, that the, I saw it as an image because I saw an artist who, who took cars and kind of crashed them to something that is really, really small. And the, my, my, my reaction to it was when I see such a car, I ask, what's the story? What happened to the car that it became this, you know? And I think that the, that the narrator of the story who has this car in his living room, basically, when whenever anybody comes, it's the perfect way to start a small, a small talk, to, to say something about the origin of this strange object, object in his room. And throughout the stories, when people ask him, what's this thing? He gives, like, I, I don't know, a dozen of different answers. And in the end, you realize that even though those answers seem to be kind of contradictory, they're all true. And and I think that the that this idea of seeing this kind of crashed uh, car and saying what's the story behind it made the story in a way a story about storytelling. I think that many of my stories are in the bottom line is that they are about storytelling and about the need to tell a story. And I think you know I think in the in this uh, story it says that uh, a conversation is like uh, digging. Uh, a tunnel with a spoon, you know, when you want to run away from jail, which is, uh, I guess, the jail of solitude. 
So kind of a conversation is a way to break your solitude. And you can dig different tunnels in different directions. You, you dig a different tunnel. If you talk to your landlord and you want him not to raise your rent and you want him to think that you're trustworthy, and you have a you dig a different tunnel if you meet a, a beautiful a woman and you want to have an affair with her. So it's all about this kind of how you can you leverage this mysterious object in your life to to tell an infinite number of stories with, with when each of them will create a different path between you and the person you're telling him about that object. I get the sense from reading your stories, and I could be totally wrong that the unconscious mind plays a large role in what goes on the page. Maybe part of that is because some of your stories uh, venture into the absurd or science fiction where they're a little bit more abstract. But I'm wondering, how how consciously do you sit down and write? I mean, you just said that a lot of your stories are about storytelling, so that seems like a conscious act. But then I sense that there's something else going on when you write. Well, it's not it's not a conscious act. When I say to you it's about storytelling, it's a little bit like I would tell you that I dreamt a dream and it's about my girlfriend dumping me. You know, it's just, it's not that I want to dream that dream, but I can recognize it when I see it. But in general, when I write story, it's, uh, for me, the best uh, metaphor for stories is, uh, is uh, trust falls. It's a little bit like I close my eyes, I fall back, and I hope that some story will catch me, you know, before I hit the ground. And uh, I start writing from a sentence or an image and uh, some kind of notions that there is something very emotional or loaded in, in this sentence or image that I'm unable to communicate to people around me. And I hope that this kind of sentence or image is a little bit like, I don't know, a tale, a, a, a tale of a, a creature that if I can, I can grab grab that creature by the tail and, you know, and maybe it will run around my study and drag me to places. But in the bottom line, if I, if I can hold on strongly to it, I'll come up with a story that the story will kind of inform me what did I find so, so emotional or unique or, or strange in that, uh, in that specific situation. So as I'm reading, I write down things that maybe come up a lot or things that I see are tropes or themes or or more on the unconscious level. And, and one of the things that came up for me hugely in so many of these stories were car accidents. And then I read afterwards, after I read this whole book, that you were in a car accident. And so yeah. when you were writing all of these, did that just kind of keep coming out because it was like on some other layer of your mind or were you more conscious about it? Yeah, no, I'm, the truth is, again, you know, I think I'm a very conscious person, but the, the moment that I start writing, I I lose all my consciousness. I kind of, I, I think I almost deliberately leave it behind. The, I think that the car accident could become like a, a very strong metaphor for me, many things or, or quite a few things. Like, you know, in my life, I, I've witnessed a suicide. My best friend killed himself and shot himself when he was next to me. And I wrote a lot of stories about suicides. And uh, I felt that, you know, that uh, many of my stories had reached suicide. But when I would look at each of them separately, I would think that the suicide kind of functions as a different metaphor in them, you know, in each of them. 
And I think the same goes for car accidents. You know that the, I think that the car accident in car concentrate is very different from the car accident in, in fly already in the, the sense that they function uh, differently in the, in the life of the character. And I think that what happened, I had a serious car accident and the, uh, I, I went through many phases. You know, I was very uh, desperate. I felt sorry for myself. I realized that actually uh, at a later stage that, you know, that, uh, that there, I had this kind of notion that there are no good and bad things in life. There are just the uh, more difficult and easier things in life. And that even though recovering from this accident was difficult, I, I actually was winning many things and I felt that I was also gained from it. So I could write a story about a guy who feels that he gains for it and I could feel write a story about a guy who had a car accident and feels self-pity uh, for it, you know? So I, it feels as if sometimes I can just kind of reach in, reach in and take an emotion that I know from myself associated with something that is substantial in my life. You know, it could be a car accident. It could be parenthood. I write many stories about parenthood and I, and I have a 14-year-old kid. And then I write stories about bad parents and about good parents and about uh, uh, dysfunctional parents and uh, actually very competent parents. And I, f I can find all of them in me because there are moments in which I'm incompetent, and moments in which I'm actually able to say the right thing. So, so I really feel that, that what happened with me is that it's as if I have this kind of a, a data bank of, a, of traumas and of moments of happiness and despair. And, and whenever I, I write about something, I kind of go to this moment in my, my life that kind of feels, seem to have an a, a affinity to what's happening in that story. So I, I did notice that a lot of your stories do have kids. And part of that is just life. You know, you're writing about people, people have kids. But it seemed like a lot of your stories were basically centered where the kid was manipulating the parent and the parent wanted to be a good parent so badly that they were when they were rendered the weaker in the relationship. I partially agree with this interpretation because I think that, you know, when, when you tell the stories, it seems as if the, the child is in a in a position of power and maybe consciously does something manipulative. But I actually feel that uh, in many of the stories, both the child and the parent are lost. And even if there is this kind of a feeling that the child is leading the parent, it's I don't see it as a, as a real sensation. Uh, uh, I feel it more that it's just another echo of the fact that the parent is lost. For me, the the biggest or strongest uh, feeling that I have as a parent is that as a parent, I'm supposed to to function as some kind of an interface between my child and life. You know, my child asks me, why do, why do you do that? You know, and they, I say, oh, you do that for this and this. Or why do people ask me for money when I want to take a cake? Ah, because we have, you know, the capitalist system, which was established, you know, in this and this year. And so this is the kind of dialogue that I have with my son. And, and basically, there is something about being a parent that kind of flashed out to me how little I know about life, both because I'm often kind of asked for explanations that I can't give. And also because sometimes I give those explanations and actually my son comes back to me and say, you know that what you said was totally wrong. You know, I, I can just give you an example. 
j'étais before uh, the election, uh, the American elections, there was this incident when uh, President Trump uh, talked about women and he said they grabs them by by the pussy. And my my son who had seen that show, uh, that in the news, he asked me what does it mean and why does he keep uh, showing it on TV. And I explained to him what the sentence meant. And I said to him, you know, the man who said it, he was just, we, we just saw that he was uh, very rude and disrespectful for all the women, you know, in the world and in the US. And basically now that they showed it to everybody, then very few people would vote for him. So he's not going to be the president of the US. And this was a very kind of a parental explanation, you know, that I give in my very confident voice. Only for that a month later, my son would come and say, hey, dad, you remember these guys just told me that he's not going to be elected for the president of the U.S.? Well, he got elected for the president, for, for presidency. And for me, really, there is something about this kind of a father-child a relationship in the, in the age in which we're living that all the time kind of flashes out how I seem to to understand less and less the world around me. This world kind of keeps changing. I don't completely get it. I'm trying to prepare my son to this world, but I, I guess maybe I'm preparing him to words that was relevant 10 years ago. And and the, and the, these sensations are sensations that you know that I think echo a lot, echo a lot in the in the stories. It's like in the story fly already. You know the beginning. Uh, in the beginning, there is a father and a child walking down the street. The child recognizes a guy on the ledge of, of the roof of the building. And while the, the, the father kind of, it, it echoes for him the situation, a situation in which he was thinking about committing suicide and he wants to stop this guy from jumping. The child is very, very happy that he is going to see a guy flying from a building the way the superheroes do. So this kind of situation where two people are looking at the same thing, you know, with the parent dreading and being totally scared and the, and the child, like my son, is many times kind of feels this optimism about life. You know, everything is going to be great or become better. Uh, I think that, that it's a, a sensation that they returns in different ways in in many of my stories and also in my life. In the story To the Moon and Back, you had a father who didn't have a lot of power over when he sees his kid. His his ex-wife clearly has more control over that. And he gets his kid the day after his birthday. And he, he got him a good present. It was like a drone, like a flying helicopter thing. But he didn't have the batteries. So he takes him to the store to get the batteries. And he doesn't want to admit that he doesn't have the batteries. So he says, you can get anything in the store that you want, which as a parent, you know, you're trying to sort of make up for the things that you feel like you can't give your son because you don't see him as often. And he's rendered kind of powerless. And then the kid asks for the one thing that he would never envision the kid asking for, which isn't for sale, which is the cash register. And I wondered if that happened to you ever? It didn't happen to me. But I, again, I think all those things, I can trace them back to an experience. And the experience that kind of started this story was that when my son, I think, was about five years old, we went to a restaurant and the, he asked for a, a pasta and he asked them, you know, to take out all the green things. Sometimes children ask not 
to have things they don't like anything that uh, looks healthy and uh, when we got the order the the waiter gave him uh, the dish but it had all those thing, green things that he asked to be that will be taken out and when my son said oh I asked without green things and the waiter said no you didn't ask for any you didn't say anything and I said to the waiter you look he asked I was here you know he he doesn't eat it can we change it and the waiter said no he didn't ask and the you couldn't hear him because he didn't ask and I I became really angry and I said to him like didn't anybody ever told you about the customer is always right you know what do you think like that we are two con men me and the little midget that we go to restaurants and then we like you know we 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 make waiters crazy and you know come on like you know we asked for it and I became really really mad and I raised my voice and you know and other uh, people in the restaurant were looking at us and the owner of the restaurant arrived and I explained the situation to him and he immediately apologized and my son got the dish that he wanted and in the end when we got the bill uh, he gave us a, the owner came himself and he gave us a tiramisu and this tiramisu and he said this is to sweeten you know this bad experience that you had and I said okay and left you know we left in good energies and as we walked back home my son said to me hey, dad can I ask you for a favor and I said sure and he said Can you promise me that every, from now on, every time we go to a restaurant, you shout at the waiter? Because when you shout at the waiter, they give us a free dessert. And this was, of course, a shocking mo- moment because in my story, I was showing my son how to stand for your right. While in his story, it, it was all about how to recognize who's weaker than you, who is the waiter. And that if you can bully, bully that waiter, you know, you get... A nice thing in return so so for him the idea of kind of of experiencing me as a bully was a good experience he said oh I thought I just had normal dad but I have that dad that shouts at restaurant and gets us free desserts you know so it was kind of an upgrade and for me this kind of feeling of a failure and humiliation of you by the way since then I didn't raise my voice at anyone next to my my son And I am hot tempered and I sometimes raise my voice, but I make sure not to do it next to my child. And the, and the, I think that, that this idea of, of kind of doing something wrong, but at the same time getting a lot of love and the appreciation for my son for doing this, this wrong thing made me want to come up with some kind of a situation where, where a, basically the parent would be in a bullying position because you know when 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 the child asks for the cash register and of course the person working the store cannot sell him the cash register and and the father recon- realizes that the more he leans over this kind of a powerless um, seller in the store the more he insists on buying the cash register on calling the owner of the store and trying to buy the cash register from it The more love he gets from his child and and this is really this kind of paradox is like you know you have to do something wrong for your son to love you and this was something that I could could identify with this dilemma and see how it can send the a parent on the wrong route like you know wanting so much his child to love him that he's basically willing to do things that he does does know that they are wrong so a story like that 
seems like it's very based in reality. It's like you took something real and you just kind of twisted it. And then you have a lot of stories in there that are absurdist and science fiction, which are also absolutely talking about reality. And I felt like a lot of those stories had to do with experiments being done on people, people who are absolutely powerless and being manipulated by outside forces. And it makes me think a lot about our political landscape. It made me think a lot about the Holocaust and how that is just an innate part of of Judaism and especially for you because your parents were in the Holocaust. Is that somewhat correct? Uh, Yes, for sure. I think that some of the stories refer to the Holocaust, you know, in a very direct way, uh, like a story called Yad Vashem, where you have a, an American couple who basically is breaking up their marriage while being in a Holocaust museum. And for me, this said they echoed a lot, this kind of feeling that being a second generation, a child to Holocaust survivor, that I always felt that there was something in my pain that was not legitimate, you know, compared to the suffering that my parents had gone through. You know, my mother was orphaned and her mother was murdered in front of her eyes, you know. So so when I was an eight-year-old and I fell off my bicycle and, you know, and I got hurt badly and taken to hospital all the time, I thought to myself, that's nothing, you know, compared to what my mother had been through. So I don't feel that it's legitimate for me to cry or to complain because, you know, this is really a tiny thing. And I think that the story about these couples that are breaking up like, is really how can you feel sorry for yourself or how can you feel angry at your partner when, you, when you're in a Holocaust museum and you see the, the, what real pain is like, what the, what the real victims look like, you know? So, so, I, so there are stories like this, and I think that I have quite a few stories that kind of refer to the memory of the Holocaust. But I think that the stories about having experiments in people or stories about clones, stories about AI, sometimes I, for me, it's a way of talking about the phenomena like, let's say, racism or this kind of human need to try and find a, cl- a class or a species that is inferior to you. You know, if, if, I make, if the, somebody will make a clone, this clone will have less rights than a human, rights than a human being or because it's kind of a man-made or manufactured, or if I can make an AI android, then then this android could serve me and do stuff for me and be like a servant or a slave, but even if it has its own intelligence, it will not be considered as a human being. So for me, these kind of stories are a way for me to talk about even the situation in the Middle East, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the racism, in the U.S., you know, it, it just all this idea, all this kind of xenophobic feeling or feeling of superiority. And what I feel sometimes that when you take a, such an issue and you actually uh, remove it from its a very, very specific uh, political context, it's easier to speak to people about it. Because I think that if I write a story about uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, being a liberal left-winger, automatically people who read it, you say, it would say, oh, we disagree with him politically, or he wrote another bleeding heart left-winger, Israeli left-winger story. But when I write a story about a clone, or when I write a story about AI, then suddenly, you know, it's, it becomes more of a fable. And in this fable, it's 
it's easier for people maybe to listen and they, and to really follow the emotion I'm trying to to share with them and not kind of find themselves kind of being totally distracted by the specific uh, political context. Yeah, I mean, some of your stories made me think a lot about Kafka. And I mean, sometimes when you're in, in the midst of so much hate and if you weren't raised, you know, with a consciousness, it makes so little sense. So the only way, because the world around you is so absurd you can write about that is that you are turned into a bug because how do you in plain language write about something that in some levels is so inconceivable like the Holocaust? You know, I never wrote a story about the Holocaust. I always write stories about the memory of the Holocaust because this was what I experienced, you know, I, uh, but, uh, but I, I agree with you that, you know, that let's say growing up in the Middle East, when you're exposed to a lot of violence, kind of, you know, straight in your face, I think it pushed me into making stories long before I wrote stories because I think that what stories do is that they take a few incidents and they tell them in a certain order. And by doing so, you take something that is seemingly arbitrary and you kind of put some sense to it. So, for example, when I was a child, I walked down the street, I saw a a woman who was wearing a a soldier uniform, a beautiful young woman, talking to a guy in what seemed to be a very intimate uh, conversation. And then at one random point, she suddenly punched him in the face and started crying and ran away. And I remember that as a child, I had to walk home. It was about a little less than a mile. And I thought to myself, almost like it was almost a desperate need that, by by the time I reach home, I have to make up a story and figure out what happened there. You know, in my stories, there were brother and sister. The brother was stealing money from the parents. It doesn't matter. It was like kind of this kind of stories that a seven-year-old kid would tell. But uh, there was something that eased me about it because suddenly this kind of uh, senseless violence didn't become a justified violence, but it, it had some sense behind it. It was something that I could uh, decipher. I could kind of integrate to into my perspective, my life, my emotions. So so for me, there was something about storytelling that it, it always had this kind of a, it helped me not alienate myself from the world around me and not not be feel, have anxiety attack whenever I see all those extreme things happening in a way that I could not explain. If I could just make a story about it, and if the story would make sense and feel right, then suddenly this arbitrary reaction would would become kind of a, a sensible one. So I noticed that a lot of your stories have marijuana in them. I didn't know if, if marijuana was legal or medical marijuana was legal in Israel, like it is in Colorado. Medical marijuana is legal in Israel. And actually, since my car accident, I've been using medical marijuana. And, uh, and what I discovered about marijuana smoking is that uh, because... Uh, uh, let's say, unlike uh, alcohol drinking, it's uh, either illegal or even if it's legal, it's something that uh, is criticized by society, that uh, the uh, idea of smoking together uh, creates some kind of uh, intimacy between smokers because uh, it's kind of like you trust each other. You trust each other in more ways than one, you know, because you maybe in many countries you're doing something that is illegal together. You're breaking the law together. 
And also, you know, even the physical action of giving a joint from one person to another, it's basically, you know, it's the it's the best way to touch somebody, for example, you know, it's and the the conversations that you speak when you stand and your defenses are a little bit down. So there's, there was also all about this kind of idea of a, of a, a, let's say smokers intimacy that interested me, you know, because, for example, let's say a, as a writer who writes about marijuana, I uh, uh, go many times to events and after the events people you know it could be a publisher it could be an editor it could be just a reader could say hey you want to smoke with me a joint and i wouldn't say yes to i would say even to most of them but i would say yes to some of them and the the, the same logic i think i would put behind that it's the same logic of if you're single and somebody asks you on a date you know, then sometimes you say, oh, no, no, I have to get back home early. Or sometimes you say, you know what, I would, it would be nice to be with this person. And I think that there is this kind of thing about uh, smoking together and, and sharing this kind of stoned intimacy in which you take your defenses off. That, is, that it's basically when somebody invites you to smoke with them, it's not a, for me, it's not a narcotic, it's a more... Uh, something that is, I would say, I don't know, emotional or, or I can't find the right word for it, but the intimate, maybe. Can you write when you're stoned? I can write when I'm stoned, but but uh, for me, there is something about writing. That writing is is, a, is basically a way of uh, trying to deal with a, with an overwhelming situ- situation or an overwhelming feeling, and basically, I think that. Uh, that when you smoke, when I smoke, I, it kind of usually feels okay. So I don't have the same urgency to write. Uh, I did write a few stories in my life, you know, when while being stoned. None of them, by the way, in flower already. I think that the only thing that I write in flower, wrote in flower already under influence was uh, uh, the first paragraph of a pineapple crash when when uh, the hero talks about the uh, the first joint you smoke each day, you know, that it's a, the importance of kind of keeping that first joint because it's like the second one and the third one will, will not be the same. So this description of what he says about the first joint was something that I wrote when I was stoned. But it's almost as if like, you know, I either write or I smoke and writing, I prefer writing much more to smoking. I I usually smoke only late at night so I can I can fall asleep because of my pain. But uh, I rarely smoke during the day again, unless I meet somebody that I feel it would be nice to smoke with them. So we have kind of a certain kind of conversation. But uh, but dealing with this kind of uh, with my problem, I, I usually prefer to deal with them by writing and not by smoking. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Uh, yeah, I, I, I read something by Kafka. Uh, and I must say, apologies in the begin- uh, in advance, that basically I have a big library, but most of my books are in Hebrew. I don't read in English, so it was <laughs> so I had to pick from what I found. A first indication of glimmering understanding is a, is a desire to die. This life seems unendurable, another unreachable. One no longer feels ashamed of wanting to die. One petitions to be moved from one's old cell, which one hates, into a new one, 
which one will come to hate. A last vestige of belief is involved here too. For during the move, might not the prison governor by chance walk down the passage, see the prisoner and say, don't lock this man up again. He's coming with me. Tell me why you chose that. I think there is something about uh, about Kafka that is probably the writer who influenced me the most. And this text, uh, for me, more than it talks about life and death, it talks about uh, uh, how you can use metaphors and how you can write text uh, with no uh, uh, prior knowledge of uh, where you're heading to, how the text can lead can take you somewhere unexpected. Can you read something that you wrote, maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? But the truth is, the, the, the paragraph that I picked, I felt was connected a little bit to the Kafka thing. And, it, and it, it was because, you know, there is something very free in the way that Kafka writes and moves between topics. I wanted to take a beginning of a story of mine that when I started writing it, I had no idea what the story was about. How, like, each sentence kind of leads to the next one, you know, and the story kind of emerges. It's a beginning of a, a story called the Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered what word is most frequently uttered by people about to die a violent death? MIT carried out a comprehensive study of the question among heterogeneous communities in North America and discovered that the word is none other than fuck. 8% of those about to die say, what the fuck? 6% say only fuck. And there's another 2.8% that say, fuck you. So in their case, of course, you is the last word, even if fuck overshadows it irrefutably. And what does Jeremy Kleinman says a minute before he checks out? He says, without cheese. Jeremy says that because he's ordering something in a cheeseburger restaurant called Jesus Christ. They don't have plain hamburgers on the menu. So Jeremy, who keeps kosher, asks for a cheeseburger without cheese. This is the end of the piece that I want to, to read. And I think there is something about it that, for me, it, this story, I started writing it with no idea about what I want to write about. And I think that this kind of concept of this kind of the cheeseburger without cheese, this idea that you want to get something in life, but you can't just straight ask for it. You know, you have to put to, to do this kind of a flip-flop to be able to ask for that simple and basic thing was something that kind of emerged from the flow of text and it led me into into writing a very, very strange story in which uh, the the heroes keep changing all the time. And uh, so for me, this this I felt this was very much connected with the Kafka uh, text that I felt was written the same way when you basically sit in front of the page and you say, I write one sentence and then another. And by the end of the first paragraph or the second paragraph, I know more about my story and I know more about where everything is headed. Where do you write? Uh, I write, and now I have a, a, a small room, uh, which is my study that I can write in. It's a, basically I wrote for most of my life in the, in the kitchen, but the, but we had the two restrooms in uh, in my apartment, and we were able to kind of uh, 
Nutrilla is one of them, and basically I'm writing where it used to be the second restaurant. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Oh, most of my life I get away from writing. I think that, you know, my life story is like somebody who's kind of tries to escape writing <laughs> all the time. I'm a very, very busy person. I, I'm a professor in university. I, I write screenplays. I, I give a speaking engagements. You know, I, I sometimes do kind of volunteer activities. So, so for me, the dialogue I have with, with writing is basically that my, my plan A is to live, you know, to have a wonderful and full life and I won't need writing in them. And I always find myself kind of deteriorating to kind of taking a page and writing something in it. And that's usually when I reach this kind of point where, where I have these, those overwhelming feelings that I cannot put into words. So, so it's not that I have a, any writing routine. I don't write every day. I don't write in the mornings. I, I write basically when a story keeps insisting to, to be written. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? This kind of changes. And actually, listening to your question, I realize how half-baked I am as a writer, you know. And that's after more than 30 years of writing. Because I don't have a, a, a an automatic go-to person. I Sometimes if I write a story, I can show it to my wife, but not all of them. Sometimes I can... Uh, uh, show it to my best friend or my brother or my editor or sometimes with specific kind of stories I can even read it to my son but uh, but I don't have any, any kind of a structure it's not that I write a story it goes there and, and by the way many times I write stories and stories and I don't show them to any anyone for a very long time how have you dealt with rejection in life or in writing <laughs> In life, I made a career out of it because I write a lot about rejection. Uh, as a writer, it's funny because I think if I look, if I can look at, I think that let's say my second book, The Nimrod's Flipout, I think was rejected by more than 50 publishers in the U.S. before it was published. I think, I don't, I'm not sure about the number, but around that, you know. And uh, I never, I really never experienced rejection of the manuscripts or my stories is something that kind of affects me a lot. For me, the feeling that I have when I when my texts are being rejected is either that they say, oh, you know what, they're right, it's not good, but most of the time it's just basically these kind of things that they didn't understand what I was trying to say. And because all of my life I have a history of being misunderstood, you know, then, then I just catalog it as saying, okay, they didn't get it. And it's not something that kind of leaves a lot of scars. What is your favorite word? Oh, I've more than one. My favorite word in, let's say, Hebrew Yiddish is a word called balagan. Balagan, it means uh, chaos, but strangely enough, I think that the, the Jewish Hebrew culture, it's the only language in which uh, chaos has a positive context. So when you say this place was in total chaos, but it was a balagan, it doesn't say something negative because I think that there is some kind of an association between the chaos and messiness and the vividness. It's as if if you go to a place and there is no chaos in it, then nobody's really living in it. So, so I really like this kind of dialogue with this kind of a, 
I like these words. It kind of allows you to show a confusion and messiness without judging it, but actually while thriving on it. And uh, if I have to think of a word that is not only in Hebrew or something, uh, I would say that maybe, well, uh, the two words that I love, I love the yearning. Yearning is a word that I really like a lot. And I think for me, it's always associated with writing. And I also love the word no. Uh, I think it's, it's really, it's an important word. And, uh, and I especially liked it when I was in the army. This idea is that, you know, that I may get into trouble or I may get into jail, but I can say this word and, you know, and stop something or will not, not take part in something that, that I feel bad about or that I feel that is fundamentally wrong. Well, thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. Oh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. you. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Edgar Carrot, author of Fly Already. And if you like today's show, check out my interview with another Israeli writer you might also enjoy, Dorit Rabinyan, whose book called All the Rivers was banned from high school curriculums in Israel. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 230 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and transcripts. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send a huge thank you out to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.